So I can tell what you all are thinking, even those of you on Zoom. Tim, that palm tree shirt is amazing. You've really come to embrace life in Southern California. Though, if you could see the amazing mustache that I have going on under my mask, it would be more like I've come to embrace life in South Florida in the early 80s. But I'm comfortable with my life decisions, which is why I'm talking about them now. Uh, <laughs> so now to our lectionary reading. That had nothing to do with what I'm saying today. I just, lectionary reading. As a side note, I really love the lectionary. I don't know how much of you know this, but we often read from the lectionary. And if you don't know what the lectionary is, uh, it is a three-year cycle of readings that go with the, the church calendars that churches all around the world use. So on any given Sunday, one set of scriptures could be heard all over the world. So we'd be reading the same, I and mean, how, how many churches will be reading from the Gospel of Mark this morning? And we share that with them. So there is something beautiful about that. One thing, though, that I find really interesting about the lectionary is the way that it cuts a lot of these passages to pieces, like a copy of the Catcher in the Rye in a Southern Baptist high school library. <laughs> Why does this happen? Well, it often happens with readings from the Psalms. So we see how the lectionary tends to maneuver around. It'll cut parts out or end at a convenient time whenever there's a, a call for God's bloody vengeance. And I think that's okay. And not that we should ignore those things, but you can only do so much on a Sunday. <laughs> Sometimes though, like in our passage from this morning, I think the idea is just that, to keep the preacher focused. There is so much stuff in this passage. And I'm not very good at parsing out all of the things and picking one thing. And I think we still decided to have read the whole passage, but I, I think it's good in the sense that I can't raise every question and I can only answer so much. For instance, in today's gospel reading, the lectionary cut out this whole section on Corbin, or as Jason probably more properly pronounced it, Corban, I think. But I have a friend named Corbin, so I just think of her every time that I say it. So we did read the whole passage, and I'm sure that you're thinking, Tim, maybe you should have taken the hint and pared it down a bit. You uh, have a, a tendency to talk a little bit too much anyways. <laughs> and I know, and I promise, that I will not go into detail explaining all of the ins and outs of Corbin or Corban. And I will also not go into why this passage is not about overturning kosher laws, which is super interesting, and you are all missing out. Oh, and I also will not go into the super interesting translation suggestion that I have that will completely transform your reading of verse 19. It's pretty awesome. But no, I'm going to be focused. You can ask me about those things later. And uh, we can sit down with some tea. And, and that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> but no, let's talk about what this passage seems to be about. Right on the surface, hand washing. Jesus says, don't do it. I have focused. End of sermon. That's it. No, Jesus actually doesn't demand the end of hand washing. Although that would be welcome news to my kids. Now, they couldn't be here this morning. You saw them on Zoom. I hope they're not paying too much attention at this point, because I know they will definitely use this call to not wash hands against me at some point. But really, what's the big deal? I mean, the last time I asked my kids why they didn't wash their hands before a meal. They did not turn around and yell, you hypocrite, and then cite Isaiah against me. There's other things. I got other things, yeah, that I'm dealing with. It's usually, it's usually Hosea, but 
obviously there is more going on here. So Mark tries to explain a little bit for us Gentiles what this is, us goyim, as they say. So in Mark, you see in verses two through three in your reading that Mark says that the Pharisees and he says, all the Jews do not eat unless they ritually clean their hands, dishes, even sleeping mats. Keeping the tradition of the elders straightforward enough. enough. But a few things. First, I should probably tell you that Mark is exaggerating here a little bit. It's a bit much to say that all Jews do this. This is kind of like out of my playbook. I, I hyperbolize everything. This is the worst. This is the best. All Jews do this. Well, the Pharisees do seem to do this, and he's right on here. And rabbinic tradition is really big on ritual handwashing. So we'll stick with that, right? Rabbinic tradition is really big on ritual handwashing. There is even a story in the Mishnah, rabbis, right? In the Mishnah of a rabbi being excommunicated for just questioning the practice, just questioning it. Like, should we be doing this all the time? So it happens. And the Pharisees were popular among the people. It was a people's movement. So many people probably did practice this. So Mark, you're sort of right. But we do know the Sadducees, just for clarification, Sadducees are not Pharisees. And I will refrain from going off on a big discussion about what Sadducees are. But they didn't wash their hands at each meal. And the same with other Jews. There were lots of ways to observe Jewish devotion to God. Especially in this case, because you may not know this, hand-washing before every meal is not, is not something commanded by God in the Bible. Look at verse 8. Jesus doesn't get upset because they are obsessively observing laws. But actually, the opposite. Jesus calls out the Pharisees because, as he thinks, they are not sticking closely enough to the law because their traditions are getting in the way, so Jesus thinks, of God's commandments. Jesus turns out to be pretty pro-law in a lot of ways. I mean, he says not a bit of it will pass away. He strengthens it in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's a, a thing us Christians need to hear often. Again, focus, I'll move on. Now, as it turns out though, the Torah does command washing hands, but only for priests in the temple, before a sacrifice. So this washing hands does happen, but in a very specific location. So what are the Pharisees doing in this? What are they then doing? It seems that they think that, and I am downloading a whole bunch of things into their heads. I'm assuming their intentions, but it seems that they think in order for Israel to be the nation of priests, that the Torah says that it is, in order for God to deliver and to dwell with them, that they should take seriously their practices of holiness. What is wrong with adding to their desire for being set apart for God? So amid their oppression, amid the oppression of those dwelling in Judea by foreign empires, Greeks, Romans, these practices were important for helping to maintain their distinct identity as a people. They kept them focused on God and away from and amid pressures to assimilate to other cultures. They were protective. It was important. I think we so easily just kind of write them off. But 
they're not, it's a lot more complicated. I mean, I think this all actually sounds pretty Anabaptist. Holiness, separation, priesthood of all believers, right? Yeah. Who knew the Pharisees were the first Mennonites? Even before Jesus and John the Baptist, who were the first Mennonites. Okay. Still, that was tongue in cheek. Still, the Pharisees knew just as well as Jesus did that these actions were not commanded by God. They knew the scripture better than we do. They knew they were not commanded by God. For the Pharisees, these traditions were secondary to the Torah. They didn't have weird relationships with it in that sense. Their purpose was not to replace Torah with these traditions and commands, but to help God's people follow God's laws and God's commandments, which are not a burden, but which are a blessing and a grace. This is how they understood it. This is how most of Jesus's audience understood it. And I think a lot of that Jesus would agree with. Further, no Jews actually believed that eating food touched with unwashed hands or not, kosher or unkosher, would leave your insides unclean. Jesus is making an argument ad absurdum. They didn't actually think you eat these things in your insides. I was like, oh no, how do I get rid of this ritual impurity that has stained my intestines? They didn't think that. My esophagus. Ritual uncleanness was really a mundane thing. People can wash it off. It isn't caused by sin. It doesn't mean you are a bad person. And it was just part of normal life. You wanted to avoid it primarily if you go into the temple, into God's holy presence. All would have agreed with Jesus. What matters most are those things that come out of the core of who a person is. Jesus is really speaking to the people. It is telling to notice how the Pharisees show up too. So actually, I mean, you have your scripture. This wasn't read, but you'll notice at the beginning, the last paragraph of chapter six, this is actually where the geographical scene begins. So this is actually part of our scene. Jesus shows up. He was actually in a boat headed to Gentile territory. And then a big storm came. When you see, he actually ends up in a different place. He ends up in a, in a Jewish Galilee and Gennesaret. And what you see there is that when Jesus arrives, where is he hanging out? In marketplaces. And there are tons of people that are sick. They're lying down on mats, which apparently Mark tells us the Pharisees say you have to clean. These Pharisees say that you have to clean. And it's notable that he is in the marketplace because what is going on, as Mark explains to us, that you have to wash every time you are in the marketplace. So look at those paragraphs, see what's happening. You can imagine them coming to Jesus and saying, shouldn't you wash yourself and separate from all this uncleanliness? Mark tells his Gentile audience, us goyim, that handwashing functions as a sort of separating from the marketplace. Wash your hands and do that thing, that's fine. Wash it, though, and be separate. It creates a functional hierarchy, even though it was, that was not the purpose. Even these additional traditions, the purpose was not to create weird hierarchies. But the marketplace is where Jesus needs to be, right? Jesus is not trying to separate from the marketplace. That is where he needs to be. So these Pharisees, for the first time, by the way, showing up from Jerusalem, we don't see that before Mark's gospel. So it's getting real serious, the power center, right? First time showing up from Jerusalem, say you need to separate at least partially yourself to create a alternate higher form of holiness. 
And Jesus seems to say that their practice here, at least how it is now working out in this scene, though designed to promote dedication to God, draws them away from the work of God. And I will tell you, I'm sure that the Pharisees did not see it that way. We can, by the way, you can read Pharisees however you want. I think a lot of times we're trained, oh, those are the bad guys. So they're coming and they're trying to trick and do evil things. But really this debate is totally normal. They come up and they ask him, they don't say, you're evil for doing this. Why are you doing this? Maybe they really want to know. And this kind of way Jesus responds, not particularly rude, although the calling out the Isaiah stuff is point, kind of pointed. Like, I don't recommend that's a way that we talk. But this is, the Pharisees are not evil. Jesus points out that their practices, however, are doing things that they did not anticipate or expect. So seeking an application to this, um, I wanted to think about, um, instead of picking, I often pick the grand themes, capitalism, nationalism, militarism, right? And that can get really abstract and makes us feel good because we can kind of disassociate from it, even though we're all enmeshed in it quite a bit, at least the way that I often talk about it the powers and principalities that Lisa laid out so well last week. So maybe I don't need to talk about them this week. I started to think, what are some of the, the Mennonite procedures that we have built up? Maybe something closer to home. And I came up with a few and I, again, focus. I picked one. Okay. And so I've been thinking about consensus a bit lately. Some of you have heard me talk about it. Now I think consensus is good. I love consensus. Love is a strong word. I think consensus is good and right. It is difficult often. It is certainly grounded in scriptural ideals, though it is not something commanded by scripture specifically, at least not in the, we have developed a process, right? We have developed procedures that guide us and we think those are right. They think they help, they help guide us in what we are doing. But did you know that not all Mennonite churches practice consensus? Did you know that? It's true. It is not, that, it's not an essential part of Mennonite identity. As a matter of fact, and this is a very informal poll, but the majority of Mennonite pastors I have spoken to do not practice formal consensus in their communities. I haven't asked Marilyn about what, what she did at her community, but she can probably throw this all under the bus when we do talk back. Would love to hear it. But I mean, it's not a uniform thing. So I haven't really asked a ton, like I said. So you take it with a grain of salt. But still, it can be easy, not that it is something that we do, but it can be easy for practices of consensus for us to idealize the procedure and the process, to believe that simply following the procedures means that we are enacting justice and peace and radical community. There's a lot more that goes into it than just following the procedures. I hardly need to speak to all the positive aspects of consensus. There's lots of reasons we do it. There's lots of reasons that we put up with the struggle of it and because we think it makes us a better community. The value that we have for every voice, this is important. I don't have time to get into all of those virtues because focus, but we all believe in consensus. But let me just poke a little bit, if that's okay. I do worry right now that I'm like the rabbi that's gonna get excommunicated for questioning, washing hands, but we'll see what happens. I'm all right, we'll see, I, I, can, I can take it. While we often think of consensus as a radical, anarchist, democratic, alternative to voting, it turns out that consensus is usually radically conservative. And it can lead to a lot of politicking and coalition forming, especially for those of us born in 
the, the political gain that is America. Back-channeling, right? Nearly always consensus favors inaction, and that's the conservative part. It, especially, we almost always frame our questions as whether we should act this way or not, join this coalition or not. And so if one person says no, then we don't. We don't act unless we can get everybody to agree. But we don't phrase it the other way, usually because we think that the, the thing we're trying to do is we have to, have com to come to consensus to change something. But what's the other way? Should we move forward without acting or joining this coalition? If there isn't consensus on that, if there's no consensus, then we do, right? It's a lot of how you frame the question. Those formulations lead to opposite ends. It's pretty more complicated than that, but that's a small example. Of course, this is somewhat by design, I think, this conservative aspect of it, somewhat by design. We put a premium on the virtue of patience, the value of every voice. And really, patience is a virtue that I think we could stand to cultivate in a lot of situations in our life. I could also. You don't have to say every example. But patience is complex, too. I don't think patience automatically or telling people to be patient is automatically a universally good thing either. Since patience can, in certain situations, be like a war of attrition, who can hang on the longest? Maybe in a consensus problem, right? Typically, those who can hang on the longest are those with the most power, privilege, and time to give, time to sit in endless debate about something and not give in. Not that... I'm not calling anybody out in particular. I'm not calling anybody out. It's just a hypothetical. But patience preferences those who have expendable time and space and resources. And those that don't can't engage in that process in the same way. So it's not enough that we practice consensus. We must be formed into people of consensus. That doesn't fix it either, but that's part of it. What are the virtues? Trying to figure out what those virtues are um, that would make that more sustainable and just. And in Christian consensus, our primary goal is not just coming to some sort of rational agreement. We often think of this, we're going to debate until we can all come to the, the same mind on something. But, and that's not, not part of it, but I don't think it's just about finding the right answer through patient dialogue rationally. But I do think in Christian consensus, and this is a distinction that we need to make, is are we seeking the movement of the spirit? Are we seeking to be aligned with what God is doing and where God is moving the community? even if it is something that I do not personally agree with. And that is a distinction that has to be made. And where you see in Philippians, where they're talking about they were of one mind or be of one mind, it's always in relation to where the spirit is moving the community. So we see this in scripture. So, and another counterpoint, depending on the decision, I don't want to ask some people experiencing hurt and depression to be endlessly patient. I just think of obviously the letter from Birmingham jail. That was always one that checks my white. Let's just patient and figure this out. That part of my brain, because that's there. But we don't want to ask people that are hurting and under impression to endless, be endlessly patient while we wait for those who have more power and expendable time to come around. There are some things I don't want to tell people just to be patient through because they are the ones who bear the brunt of that patience. And they will be the ones who are lost to the attrition. Sometimes our pre procedures in this way can be like korban, 
a well-intended thing that has the potential to do so much harm. So there's this great blog post. This is a story, right? There's this great blog post from a few years ago on anabaptisthistorians.org. You're all, I could see running your phones and like bookmarking that by a guy named Bruce Stambaugh, who relates a story about community Mennonite church in Markham, Illinois, general conference. It's not about consensus, but it is about church action. And I think about this story a lot when I think about consensus. In 1961, community Mennonite church was a white suburban church. So 1961, when three African-American women came to attend Sunday school. Despite some bumps along the road, the church from that moment on began to integrate and grow seemingly successfully for the next few years. In December 1963, the church even had its Christmas pageant with a black Joseph and a white Mary. All seemed well. But the next board meeting, at the end of it, January 17th, 1964, church board chair, and I'll call him out because he's called out on the, the blog post anyways, L. Lavreau, started to read Genesis 11, the story about the Tower of Babel. And what did this rambling argument get him to? He seemed to argue against racial integration and interracial marriage. Apparently, the nativity scene set him off. Stambaugh, in his blog post, writes, it must have been quite a discussion because at the end of it, Lavreau had resigned from his position as board chair and declared that he would not return to worship services at CMC. A month later, the president of the general conference attended the next board meeting where board member Margaret Carr also raised objections to both integration and interracial marriage. A month later, the controversy came to an end. Lebreau said he was unwilling to return unless the church moved away from integration. The board, however, made a decision that they were not gonna endlessly debate this. The board put its foot down and voted unanimously that and the quote, Community Mennonite Church of Markham, Illinois welcomes continued growth on a racially integrated basis. That was it. I wanna cite Stambaugh's last paragraph of this post completely outright. He writes, history could have gone a different direction that night. Board members could have chosen to be silent, allow the controversy to spill over into the congregation as a whole, or simply decide that the bother wasn't worth it. Other majority white churches certainly did, but instead they set their faces toward an uncertain future and made the decision to continue trying to figure out what it would mean for black and white to worship together. I think about this story, as I said, often when I think about consensus. The story, for whatever reason, specifically touched me, maybe because of its Mennonite context. I wonder what would have happened in this community if they had let that dispute drag out until consensus was reached that the procedure could not be violated, that this had to happen. How this process designed for good could lead to the old forces of separation, right? That we see in our passage, these old forces of separation, the hand-washing separation, to dig in their heels. What would the end of that process look like? Do we have processes in our history that look like that? The scars that would have been left and who would have hung around to see the integration anyway? Who would have been the losers in the war of attrition there? 
what I feel bad with is I'm not coming up with good answers here. I'm trying to get us to question some of our things, not because they're bad, but so that we can live into them more fully and understand them better. What does consensus look like? Practice rightly in this situation. It's often hard for us goyim. Do you know what goyim means, by the way? Nations, that's another name for Gentiles, a Hebrew word. So we are us Gentiles, those of us that are Gentiles. It's often hard for us to relate to the Jewish purity system. It's easy for us to quickly dismiss it as backward and unenlightened. Us modern people don't do that. We moderns, of course, being so much more enlightened, but here we are in the midst of a pandemic telling everyone to wash their hands constantly, more than just before every meal, especially when coming back from the marketplace. I'm not saying that Jesus said, don't wash your hands or take COVID protocols. Don't say that I said that because I'm not. But Jesus is not saying ignore all practices and just focus on your hearts. In all of our practices, including consensus, which was just the example that I used to try and bring this home. We need to develop ways to be sensitive to the movement of God, to not focus inward on self or personal pet concerns, but to seek the movement of God, to care for each other, especially those who those dialogues will affect much more personally, to care for our neighbors and to build a community that turns toward the world in God's love to form, to be people that are formed by the virtues that are necessary for consensus. It's not enough to do it, but we need to be people of it. And we are not trained, formed in this world to do those sorts of things. Mennonite communities that do it over like hundreds of years of living together and forming that community, that's a whole different thing. That's another sermon. We need to just think about that. What are the things that are preventing us from doing that? What does it mean to be people that are formed in that way? And I think Jesus focuses here on hearts for a reason, not because he's saying forget practices, or he's, he wants us to be people that are formed in our hearts by the word of God that shapes us. Not because we have some like separate channel to God and it's only about our inner feelings, but that our hearts need to be shaped too. He goes on later, he talks about the Pharisees are coming up in like a chapter. He says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. So he's talking about eating. Watch what you eat there because what you take in will take root and grow. Well, the word of God, right? Jesus seems to tell us the law of God, I think Jesus thinks is good to guide us and lead us in specific ways in faithfulness and love. And so we are to be people whose hearts are shaped so that we can practice these things and procedures that guide us and help us and remind us to think, care about the value of every voice, to try and seek patience, but never let it overcome our, our search for goodness and justice amid those things. Not to idolize the procedure over the end. May we be those whose hearts are formed by God's guidance. God's commands, Jesus's teachings, the life and the teaching of Jesus and the movement of God's spirit, that we might not think our procedures will save us, but will help us live into the love of God together. May we be a people out of whose mouth comes justice and out of whose heart comes peace and whose hands and feet bring forth God's love so that all might see the joy of God's kingdom. Amen.